Sometimes uh, in the morning service, I have to confess that I can be a little bit jealous, and uh, I can be jealous of the, of the children during the children's address, because you get fun, cuddly toys and pictures on the screen and, and quizzes, but we, the grown-ups, we don't get any of that. And maybe I know the answer to the quiz question, but I can't well stick up my hand and give an answer. Um, so tonight... We're having a quiz for everyone. That's for the adults and for the children, okay? Here's the theme of the quiz. Jewish feasts and festivals. Oh, that's a fun one. Jewish feasts and festivals. Okay, it might be quite a hard topic, um, but the question's easy. And there's only two rules. No shouting out and no prizes. Okay, so here's the question. How many, in your head, how many... Jewish festivals and feasts can you name? How many feasts and festivals do you know? Maybe you can jot them down in your notebook and top up your score later on. I bet you know more than you maybe think you do. And there's a free one in the passage in front of you tonight if you're not sure. Okay. I think most of us would manage the Passover, right? We know the Passover. How about uh, the Day of Atonement? You maybe remember the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, as it's called uh, these days. Maybe it's getting a little bit more tricky now. Um, What about Pentecost? That's a significant uh, feast for Christians as well, isn't it? Pentecost. Did you get the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths? Yeah, Paul's nodding, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's all sorts of feasts and festivals we could think about tonight. The reason I ask is because we come to a feast or a festival tonight that we're maybe not so familiar with. It's called the Feast of Dedication. But I bet you have heard of it, and you maybe know it by its other name. It's a feast celebrated by Jews around the end of December, around the time when Christians are celebrating Christmas. That's right, Jews are celebrating Hanukkah. Remember Hanukkah? You know that name? Maybe. The reason that I'm emphasizing this at the start uh, is because really it's no coincidence that this passage is set at the time of the Feast of Dedication. And really I want you to have in your head what this feast is all about. So bear with me as I explain it to you, okay? So what is the Feast of Dedication about? What's Hanukkah all about? Well, it remembers the purification of the temple in uh, 160 BC uh, by a man named Judas of the Maccabees. Okay, it's about the purification of the temple. Now, what did that purification involve? Well, it was two things. It was the removal of one thing and the bringing back of another. Okay, so it was the removal first of a pagan altar, so a false altar uh, to the god Zeus, And then the second thing is, it was its replacement with an altar to Yahweh, to the one true God, to the God of the Jews. Okay, so if we got that, it's the removal of false, blasphemous worship in the temple and its replacement with true worship, okay? So have that in your head because we're going to revisit it again in our last point of the sermon tonight. We've got three points. Remember that one for the last one, okay? So as we come to our sermon tonight, 
three points, and here's the first one. It's first couplet, really. Suspense and sheep. Okay, so suspense and sheep. What kind of a, what kind of a TV show viewer are you? How do you, how do you like to watch your, your TV series? Um, I think people fall into one of two categories. You either watch it week by week, and maybe you make a bit of an occasion of it, and you watch it with a few pals. Or maybe you have to wait until every episode is out, and then you watch it all in a one just back to back to back over a weekend. And I think these two categories, they tell us really how we deal with, uh, with cliffhangers. Some people love a cliffhanger, and they love to talk about it all week, and they speculate about what's just around the corner. Whereas some people, they can't handle it, and they just need to know straight away what's coming next. Well, maybe you see what I'm getting at here. Um, because tonight, we've come, the Jews have come to the point of a cliffhanger, and they can't bear it anymore. They can't bear the suspense. And they come to Jesus here in our passage tonight, chapter 10 and verse 24. And they say to him, we've had enough. If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. It seems like a reasonable enough request, doesn't it? A sincere enough question. But think about what we know about the expectations of, uh, of Jews around that time. What were their expectations of a Messiah? Their expectations were largely framed in political terms. I think we know what that means. They lived in a time of oppression, of Roman rule. And they were looking for a Messiah who would come along and he would free them. He would liberate them from the Roman oppression how does the Lord Jesus reply? Well, look at verse 25 with me. He doesn't reply in political categories, but in spiritual categories. Our Lord is not so concerned with questions of nationality, which nation you belong to. He's concerned about which flock you belong to. See, despite the, the accusation that Jesus hadn't spoken plainly uh, about being the Messiah, he, he has done so throughout John's gospel. If you know John's gospel at all, uh, can you think of uh, the woman of Samaria, the woman by the well, and what Christ said to her? Or uh, the man born blind uh, who's healed? Or maybe perhaps most radically of all in chapter 8 of John's gospel for Christ has that amazing statement, before Abraham was, I am. He points to his words, but it's not just his words, it's also his works that have demonstrated who he is too. Some of the miracles in John's gospel, the turning of water into wine, the feeding of the 5,000, and again, the healing of the man born blind. All of these things point uh, to who Christ is. And yet they still do not believe. Why do they not believe? Well, we're given the answer. Look at verse 26. You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. You're not part of my flock. 
Now, not many of us instinctively warm to the idea of being called a sheep. Brings to mind ideas of uh, following blindly, going with the crowd, getting caught up with a herd mentality or flock mentality, maybe more correctly. But that's not the language that Christ uses of his sheep. And there's four characteristics laid out for us here from verses 27 to 29 of what Christ's sheep are like. Let's think about three of them briefly and then dwell more on the last one. Okay, so first characteristic, Christ's sheep listen to him. They listen to what he has to say. Characteristic two, they are known by the shepherd. Christ, as as God, knows all people. He knows everyone. But as shepherd of his flock, he knows each sheep intimately. So sheep hear his voice. They are known by him. Thirdly, his sheep follow him. They are obedient. They're attentive to their shepherd. But it's the fourth one uh, that we're going to major on together for a moment, because really it's all what verse 28 and 29 are all about. Number four, hear this, the sheep are secure in the hands of their shepherd. Let me ask you this, do you have any family heirlooms? Maybe that's a bit grand for us in Dundee. Family heirlooms, a piece of art, a piece of jewelry, maybe? I know someone whose family heirloom is a dishwasher. But we all love getting gifts. But there's something special about a gift passed from one family member down to another to another. And I'm thinking here especially tonight of a gift from a father to a son. That's the language used in verse 29, isn't it? Look at it now. What does Jesus say? My father given them to me. Dear Christian tonight, that verse is about you. You have been given as a gift from the Father to the Son. Maybe you don't think about yourself that way. Maybe like many of us, you struggle with self-doubt, self-criticism, You've tried to pull yourself up by your bootstraps to just do better, but but time and time again you find yourself back at square one. Well, tonight, if you are a Christian, you are a precious sheep. You're a precious gift from the Father to the Son. And do you see the security that that brings? What could be more precious to a son than a gift from their father? What could be looked after more carefully, seen to more attentively than that? But do you see how it's a double security? Look down with me. In verse 28, it's Jesus who holds the sheep. And in verse 29, it is the father. This is only possible, this double security, because of verse 30. Look at it with me. 
Christ is speaking, and he says, I and the Father are one. We're in deep waters now, indeed. And it'd be great to spend more time uh, on this this evening, and we could talk about the distinction in the persons of the Father and the Son, but the unity of essence, the unity of substance. But we can't do that now, or we'll be here till the morning. For now, I just want you to see the security that that brings us as Christians. But as we move on to the rest of the passage, what I want to say is this is more than unity of will, as in I and the Father are of one mind or we're of one focus. This is Jesus claiming to be divine. And the Jews, they pick up on this immediately. And they also pick up some stones. And that takes us to our second point. Because we've had suspense and sheep. And now we have stones and scripture. Stones and scripture. Have you ever seen someone exhibiting great bravery in the face of grave danger? Maybe you've heard stories of war, of troops outnumbered, and yet they stand to the last man. Or maybe you've seen videos online of someone facing up to a, a wild animal to protect their family from danger. Well, make no mistake tonight as we look at this passage, Jesus is in real danger. But how does he respond? Facing an angry crowd with stones in their hands, he calmly reasons with them. Not only to show them the error of their ways, but even to help them and to help them come to faith in him. For what works has Jesus done to be worthy of stoning? They can't find one point in their law that he has broken in all his works. And so he's charged with blasphemy. They take only the words he has spoken and reject completely all the works that he has done who demonstrate who he is. And how Jesus responds to this charge it should make us set up tonight, I think. Because this portion of Scripture from verse 34 to 38, it's, it's a complex and it's a bit wordy. Would you agree? It's a bit wordy part of Scripture. So I think it's worthwhile just slowing down, spending some time in this passage so we get our heads around it. So what do we have in front of us here? Well, Jesus is using... Uh, a technique, uh, pretty typical of rabbis at that time. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, so something inferior to something superior. So let's take it verse by verse. Okay, look at verse 34. Jesus quotes Psalm 82, which we've just sang together. I said, you are God's this psalm, the psalm that we've sang, it refers to judges, that is, human beings 
who carry out a divine function, judgment. So this psalm refers to these judges as gods. Have you got that? Judges are referred to as gods. On to verse 35. Look at it with me. There are two points here in verse 35. The first is this. The word of God came to these judges, and they are called gods. Okay, we've established that already. The second point is that Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus Christ says that Scripture cannot be broken. This is a tremendous insight into how the Son of God views the Word of God. Our Lord Jesus here makes an argument for His divinity based on a single verse in a psalm of Asaph. Okay, we're doing well. Human judges who receive the Word of God are referred to as gods in Scripture, and Scripture cannot be broken. Next is verse 36. It's the question Jesus asks the crowd that they're unable to answer. If they see the Scripture calling judges gods, and they accept that Scripture is true, then how can they call Jesus a blasphemer? The one, what what does it say in verse 36? The one whom God the Father consecrated and sent into the world. To provide evidence for his claim, he again points to his works and his issues an ultimatum. If the works I am doing are not of the Father, then don't believe in me. But if the works I am doing are of the Father, believe the works and see that I am the Son of God. I wonder what you made of verse 38 when we read it earlier. Seems an odd statement on first reading, doesn't it? Even though you do not believe me, believe the works. Some have taken this statement to say that you can believe in the miracles of Jesus, uh, but you don't have to believe in the divinity of Jesus. In reality, to view it that way, it completely misses the point. You see, the logic of Jesus here as that it is because of his divinity, because of his unity with the Father, which we've spoken about earlier, that he is able to perform the works that he does. As one has said of this passage, the inability of the crowd to see God's presence in Jesus and his works, ultimately it demonstrates their ignorance of God and how he works This is tiring for a Sunday evening. So maybe an illustration uh, can help us. Imagine you meet someone and uh, in conversation, uh, they mention that they're uh, an expert at uh, at chess. 
don't know how you've come around to this topic of conversation, but they mentioned that they're an expert at chess, and for whatever reason, uh, you don't believe them. And so, to demonstrate their knowledge, they get on the computer, log on to chess.com, and they demonstrate their knowledge by beating 10 opponents in a row, back to back. What are your options? You either accept the works as evidence of their claim, or you dismiss the works as a lie, as an illusion, and you go on in unbelief. There are various applications uh, that we can make for our passage tonight. One of those, surely, in light of what Christ has said about scriptures, is how we ourselves view the Bible. What role does the Bible have in our lives? But really, I think there is another application, which is more at the, at the heart of the passage. And it's a question. It's the question that the crowd themselves at that time had to face. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And maybe if I could be more specific, this is an application for those uh, perhaps who have been in church for a while. You've heard about Jesus, like this crowd. You've heard the teachings of Jesus, like this crowd. You've even read stories of the miracles that Christ has performed. The question you have to answer from this passage tonight, it's not, do I believe in miracles? It's not, do I believe in a historical Jesus? The question is this, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Believe in him tonight. Believe in him and you will have forgiveness and you'll be brought into that flock that we spoke about earlier. You'll have the security of being one of Christ's sheep. And this call to believe, it brings us to our last point tonight. We've had suspense and sheep, stones and scripture, and finally we have blasphemy and belief. Blasphemy and belief. Do you remember the quiz we had at the start? Can you remember the name of the feast that's happening during this passage? As Christ is talking with the crowd, we're at the time of Hanukkah. It's the feast of dedication. And what did we say that this feast was all about? Can you think back that far? It was about the removal of a pagan altar an altar to the Greek god Zeus, and its replacement with an altar to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. So really, the Feast of Dedication, it's a time where the focus is on the right and proper worship of God and on the purity of that worship. The removal of blasphemous worship and the reinstating of true worship. Now with that in mind, look down with me please to verse 39. 
Do you see what's happening here? Jesus, the Son of God, is forced to flee the temple. He has to escape the building in order to avoid being arrested by the crowd. It's no coincidence that this passage begins the way it does. Jesus is walking in the temple. God himself is present in the temple with his people at a time where they commemorate the purification of the temple and its restoration to its proper purpose. And yet they do not recognize him. But it's worse than simple ignorance of God's presence. They actively and violently remove and seek to even destroy that very presence. Because you see, as they accuse Jesus of blasphemy for demonstrating his unity with the Father by doing the very works of God, really it is, it is the crowd themselves who are committing blasphemy and how they respond to the Son of God. Do you see the, the sad the twisted irony of this passage at a time where the focus should have been on the centrality of God in the temple. Their vision is crowded, is clouded with unbelief. But our passage doesn't end without hope. Jesus retires to a place where John had been baptizing, that place where the Spirit had descended upon him And the voice came from heaven, making it plain to all who would hear, this is my beloved son. People come to Christ, and rather than coming and asking for signs or proofs of who he is, they come in belief. They come and they accept that witness of John the Baptist. And we'll finish tonight by considering that witness together. Turn back with me, please, to chapter 1 of John's Gospel. John's Gospel in chapter 1. And find verse 34 with me. What is the witness of John that the crowd believe? Verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We've thought much tonight about those in this passage who have denied that Jesus is the Son of God. That question remains for you to answer, for you alone. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Christian here tonight hope you can take great comfort in the security that it is to have Jesus as your shepherd. We are held safely in his hand, and no one can snatch us from that. This life is full of worries, concerns. There's much change in finance, in politics, in our health, our families. I trust that tonight you can go home uh, knowing that the Son of God has you in his hand, 
in the midst of it all. And there's no safer place than that. For those who have the Lord as their shepherd, can walk through even the valley of the shadow of death, and yet still fear no evil. Let's pray to him.